Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to What's the Word. Uh, this show is about finding out what inspires people to succeed in their respective careers. My name is Sherald John, and thank you for joining me tonight. I had the honor of chatting with Tom Reed, he, who is the founder and CEO of Certified Contracting Solutions, which is a full-service contract management, financial service, training, and mentoring company. He uh, consults with the U.S. federal government contractors on complex regulatory environment systems, compliance, contract management, best practices, and general management relationship. And I had the opportunity to chat with Mr. Reed on on the live recording on Blab. And also, you're going to hear uh, other participants who join in on the chat, you know, during the interview on Blab. So without further ado, here's the interview with Tom Reed. All right. Tom Reed, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, you all. All right. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. Uh, I have... I'm going to ask you to start off with an icebreaker because I'm, I don't know. I, I know you mentioned before that you're not much in sports, but I'm going to ask, uh, what is your, uh, who's your favorite sports team and why? Well, it's got to be the Denver Broncos. Uh, I lived in Denver pretty much since 1990, and uh, I, enjoy, I enjoy football. I've always enjoyed football. I grew up as a Baltimore Colts fan, and as a result, I hate everything Indianapolis that is possible. Um, and so when Peyton came to the uh, to the Broncos, I'm like, okay, this causes me some problems because of where he came from. But he took a year off, and uh, you know he got a new neck. And so with that in mind, I said, we'll, we'll forgive him if he brings us a few more Super Bowl rings. And so uh, we've we've adopted Peyton uh, despite his heritage. Keeping in mind, Peyton wasn't there when when Urse did what he did and stole the Colts in the middle of the night from Baltimore. Uh, but I have to say, football. The other uh, the other sport I follow is NASCAR, and people may laugh about that because uh, you know it's NASCAR. <laughs> I remind them that NASCAR is the only true sport because everything else is just a game, a football game, a baseball game. Yeah, they're just games. NASCAR is a true sport, uh, and they they revamped the way they do things now so that they actually have a championship series of things, and uh, and that's kind of enjoyable. So. Outside of those two, I don't watch much else. I stopped watching baseball after the strike in the early 90s. Uh, <laughs> I never really got into uh, hockey. Uh, basketball, I never quite saw the sense to it, particularly since uh, being who I was, that, that little ring was just way too small for that big basketball to fit through. I could never get it to go through. So uh, those things just never never intrigued me. But uh, yeah, that's the Broncos, I'd have to go with them. Okay. Now, it's really interesting that you mentioned about, you know, baseball with a strike because it kind of, uh, let's just say it ties into, you know, with, you know, I guess right now with the economy and sense because it seems like, you know, if like at the time they were like, you know, they were looking for more money and greed. Now, in the same sense, you know, businesses are now, you know, looking for ways to cut costs and in a sense, you know, layoffs is happening every day. So, can you share with us uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's true. Back at the baseball strike, they wanted more money. And they were willing to, uh, to cancel the World Series over that. And this would be like somebody planning a conference in my field of government contracting and inviting all these people to attend the conference and then somebody getting up on stage and saying, well, none of our guest speakers should uh, show up, so you can all go home now. 
You wouldn't think of doing that. I mean, that, that would just be anathema to all of our thinking, and we just simply wouldn't put our public, our clientele, our customers, whatever you want to call them, uh, in that kind of a position. Now, they would be rightfully angry, and they would abandon us. And I understand that because that's what I did to baseball uh, after the strike. I just never got back into it. And I, and I was a big Baltimore Orioles fan. I was, I was an Orioles fan back in the era of Earl Weaver, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Jerry Adair, Paul Blair. I mean, take your pick. The, the, I can name the whole team. Uh, but not now. And businesses do tend, on occasion in my view, to get greedy. We speak sometimes, and it's usually in a political sense, but we speak sometimes of the crony capitalism. And I, I'm a big believer in a capitalistic system and a capitalistic society. However, everything has its dark side. And the crony capitalism, of which one certain presidential candidate who will remain nameless is a master, um, is, is not the good side of capitalism. Does it exist? Yes. Yeah. But we all have to work to, to get rid of that element. Uh, we were talking earlier about the social media platforms. And if you go into some of the reviews of Blab, they'll tell you that it's nothing but porn. That's all it is on Blab. And I'm like, I'm on Blab all the time. And I've, I've never run into that. Uh, and so there will certainly be that side of things. And yes, I have tuned into some of the late night ones where there's three or four very stoned people not saying a whole lot. <laughs> but, but they're having a black session. And, and so the point is, there's always that dark underside of things. You're never going to get rid of that. The point is, how do we collectively lift that up and don't engage in the crony capitalism, don't engage in ripping people off? We don't take the P.T. Barnum view of uh, there's a sucker born every minute. We, we look at a way to lift everybody up. And, and uh, yes, again, it's a bit political, but there's an old saying in politics that a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's kind of how I view these things. And, and it, the more people that I can engage with, the more people that I can lift up, more people that I can help, uh, then the whole world is better off. Uh, maybe just a tiny little bit, but that's it. That's what I can do. That's what I do. All right. Now, and that's really cool. So now, now of course, i got to ask about, uh, you know, how did like you you've been on you know contracting for years with federal uh how did you get into that per se that's actually a funny story um i went to college pre-med i was gonna be a doctor i wasn't sure why but everybody said hey you did good in science in high school so go be a doctor and i got into the program and i'm three years into the program and I'm, I'm hating it. Just, I don't like it at all. We're sitting in, um, in chem lab one day, and it was organic chem. And I'm sitting there, and one of the guys in the class asked the professor, so what do you do in the off-season? And he says, oh, in the off-season, when I'm not teaching, I row around this, this dirty, polluted, smelly lake, and I collect water samples. And then, in the afternoon, I go into the lab, and I do titrations. And I'm sitting there going... This is not my life. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> so I go see my guidance counselor, and I'm like, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. Now, most people are smart enough to drop pre-med before organic chemistry. Not me. I, you know, I'm taking organic chemistry in the junior year. And uh, so we looked, we looked around, and she said, well, you're a junior. You've got to declare a major. And to declare a major, you had to have two credits. And so I had one humanities, I had one social science, 
I had one accounting class. I had one of everything except math and science. I'm not majoring in math. So I'm done with those. So we struggled with that for a bit, and um, I had another meeting with them, and they said, oh, well, you know, you have an AP credit in English, and you took a poetry class, so, so you have two English credits. I was like, great, I'm an English major. <laughs> See how much thought I'm into that. <laughs> so I spent the last half of my junior year, senior year, just reading everything, you know, from Moby Dick to everything Dickens wrote, everything Twain wrote, you know, I was just doing my English major in the last year and a half. Well, at that point, my roommate says to me, so uh, how are you going to pay back your education loans teaching high school English? I said, well, that's a pretty good question. And I uh, went back to the guidance counselor, and they said, well, you, you should consider law school. I was like, no, 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 no. Lawyers, politicians, scum of the earth, not interested. I'm not doing that. And they said, well, you, you've got to decide something. So because I had talked with organic chem, um, how can I say this? I was one of the people in college who made sure that the top two-thirds could exist because somebody's got to round out those bottom numbers. And so my GPA was nothing to write home about. I did take the boards, law boards, and I did okay on that. I tended to okay on standard tests, and I got into law school. I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go to law school. Now, high school was a joke to me. I didn't do anything in high school. Uh, college, I had more fun at my fraternity than I had in the classroom, and so it was not until law school that I actually applied myself, and I made top 10%, and I made law review, which are two of the key credentials you want to do in law school, and between the second and third year of law school, I got a little book from the ABA called the Washington One Act, and it listed all of the legal internships in D.C., so I sat down, and you're going to like this. I sat down at my typewriter and I typed out over 300 letters. Uh, that was the technology we had back then. And, uh, and I sent them all off to the agency. And I got offers from two, NASA and the Navy. The Navy came in first, so I took it. And I spent the summer between my second and third year of law school uh, interning with the Navy. So walking on the first day, it was the Navy Yard in D.C. <clears throat> Sadly, everybody knows about the Navy Yard these days, but it was, it was smaller back then. And um, the boss says, there's a file on the desk there. I want you to review it. It's a protest. I said, oh, okay. Uh, what's a protest? And he said, well, if somebody doesn't like something we've done in an acquisition, they, they protest GAO. And I said, oh, great. Uh, what's GAO? And he said, well, at the time, it was the government accounting office. Or, excuse me, the general accounting office. It's now the government accountability office. And he says, yeah, well, just, just read the file. We'll discuss it. And I sit down and I open it up the file. And it says, this is a contract for $1.2 million worth of load banks. <laughs> Great. What's a load bank? And that was my introduction to government contract. And um, I knew nothing. I was just falling into it. Well, I spent the summer uh, working with this, this group. I learned a lot about government acquisition. I went back to my third year of law school. I'm heading down the steps. Senior year of law school, um, I'm headed off to my estate and gift taxation exam, which nobody looks forward to estate and gift taxation exam. It's just terrible. So the phone rings. I was like, okay, phone, test, 
phone. And I grabbed the phone. It's my old boss. And he said, uh, because you interned with us, you were in the mix. I want you to know we're going to offer you a full-time job. you got to graduate. you got to pass the bar, but we're going to offer you a full-time job. I said, I accept. And he says, no, no, no. We're going to send you a letter and, you know, I have to set it, uh, consider it and, and respond. And I said, great. I accept. I can grow the beard back and I can stop the interviews and I got a job. And uh, he says, well, yeah, if you want to look at it that way. And I went into the exam, and I aced the exam because I didn't care anymore. I had a job. And uh, so I went back. I actually went back to the very same office at the Navy Yard and uh, passed the bar, and, and that's how my career in government contracting got launched. But the thing is, I, I mentor a lot of, of young professionals in the government contracting field these days, and they often ask me about the story. And my point to him is, look, very, very school, very, very few schools have a program in government contracting. There's a couple, UCAL, Palmona, um, University of Houston, there's a couple around the country that, that do have them. But the vast majority of people who do this work came from somewhere else. Yeah, we've got some paralegals, and we got a lot of lawyers, and we got people like that. But you, you ever wonder where philosophy majors get a job? Government contracting. Uh, wow. In other words, we are all from a lot of different places, and it is a business environment. You need some business uh, credentials to do this, and then from there, you you just um, uh, you build your career based on the variety of work that can be done. I mean, you work in government contracting, you might only do small purchase, or you might do simplified acquisition. Uh, I grew up in aerospace, and, and we dealt with billion-dollar contracts. Uh, one of my contracts when I worked at NASA was, was NAS 914000. I still remember the contract number. It was the contract between NASA and Rockwell Downey to build the shuttle orbiters. And so I was out on the factory floor where they're building the shuttle orbiters uh, back in that day. So it, it was fun stuff. It was, it was a good thing to do. It was a great experience. And I, I parlayed that into a series of jobs after the government, seven years of the government, I spent about 11 years with Martin Marietta. They became Lockheed Martin. Uh, I did some work with a company called DynCor. I did DOE work at Rocky Flats, Pantex, Hanford. Uh, Pinellas was another one we shut down for DOE. And um, that, that's just, you know, the next thing I know, I've spent more than 20, more than 30 years doing government contracting. Uh, by no plan, my, my college major wasn't a plan, going to law school wasn't a plan, uh, but when the opportunities came up, and this is the real key, I was prepared, I was sufficiently prepared to take advantage of the opportunity, and it has led to a very fulfilling career. And that's, I know it's a long story, but that's the whole story. That's really that's really awesome, and it's really interesting too because you know because it gets like right now you know especially now with college you know you know we you know many are changing majors almost every time in a sense. Like for for those of well for those of us who are like you know look like you know currently you know in the process in a you know start our businesses. Like especially if they're if if they have fun jobs, why do you think uh, you know going this route of entrepreneurship is is uh, beneficial? Well, <clears throat> let me start by saying that I don't believe that everybody is cut out to be an entrepreneur, hmm. and I also don't think it it should be necessarily your first foray into business. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, <clears throat> I was working with a guy, old friend of mine, 
good contract manager. And I was able, through my company, we landed a consulting uh, arrangement. And we had to go look at a company and, and their systems and see if they could handle government contracts. And I took this guy with me because he's a good contract manager. I figured he could look at the contracts. He's a good job. Uh, he's a few years older than I am. And one day, we're sitting at the table with the client. He's sitting down the end of the table. And every time I look over, you know, he smiles and he nods, you know. And I'm like, okay, I, I thought I gave you a task to do, but I guess he's just ignoring what he tends to be And we're walking back to the hotel at the end of the day. And I said, hey, Pete, you, know, you really didn't say much today. You didn't ask a lot of questions. I assume that, that matrix task is done. Uh, what's going on? And he says, uh, oh, yeah, I left my hearing aid back at the hotel. I didn't hear anything that was going on today. I was like, Pete, <laughs> we're consulting with a client. We're trying to help the client. You don't sit there for a day, not hear anything, and expect to get paid. That's not how entrepreneurs work. It may be a job sometimes, but not as an entrepreneur. And it forced me to think about the number of people that I've known that are really good people and they're really good at what they do. But if you dump them into the consulting world of, of, of doing those kind of engagements, they have no idea what they're doing. And they screw it up. They hurt themselves. And and so it, it was a real eye-opening experience for me to discover that not everybody is suited to handle those kinds of businesses. And that there are some people who should just get a job and be very happy doing it. I know many people who do. There are many people who shouldn't even go to college because they're really good with their hands and they're good craftsmen and they can have a much more fulfilling career doing what they love rather than being forced into, well, I'm going to run a woodworking business. No, be a great woodworker. Let somebody else run the business. Uh, and, and it bothers me sometimes when I see people that, that they come forward with a lot of great skill, a lot of great talent, but they've been brainwashed into thinking, well, I've got to get my degree, I've got to get an advanced degree, and I've got to get a master's, and i got to... Okay, go be a professional student if you want to be, but that's not the right path for everybody, and don't get brainwashed into thinking it's the only path for you. Yeah, and that's, that's, really, that's really interesting and key because, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, not many people will be will be suited to be, uh, you know, to go to college, and they can at least, you know, create their own work. Like right now, and you know, social media, you know, it's given us the platform to create uh, products and services for the better, and especially, you know, showcase our expertise too for the better. So it's so in a sense, it's, it kind of it kind of makes makes you think that maybe you know, college is is kind of it's kind of like an option. Well, it's an option right now. You know, it's not a mandatory. Uh, it's not mandatory for for many people now, if they want to uh, succeed in life for the better. Absolutely true. So, so of course, no, so now I gotta ask this question: Like, uh, what are the challenges of running your business, which is a certified contract solutions? Uh, certified contracting solutions uh, was started in '02. And uh, I was working with a company at the time that was what we call an 8A. It was a, a minority set-aside uh, contractor. And um, it, it was not fulfilling. I, I was not reaching my potential with that. And uh, I decided that I could do better working on my own. And so I struck out, hung the shingle, and uh, had a couple of, of clients who used me for a variety of different things. And the large part of what I did initially was um, training. Uh, apparently, I'm pretty good at it. I get good reviews. 
And so I built a large part of my business doing training in the government contracting sphere. And so as the, as the company grew and managed to survive through the first couple of years, um, I learned a great deal about the actual running of a business. I'll give you a perfect example. When I was in the corporate world, I was in the legal staff. And so the boss, some president, usually an aerospace engineer who goes to be president, uh, you know, would be soliciting input from his team. And so I would give him the legal view and say, well, here are the legal issues and here's what you need to watch out for. And so often, they would decide to do something different. And, and I remember at that point in my career, I was so offended. It's like, does he know who I am? I'm the lawyer. I, I'm the one who tells him what's legal and what's not. And, and he went and did something else. And, you know, it was a, a very immature view from my, from my perspective. When I started running my own business, and I was the decider, yeah, I'd look at the legal issues, but it dawned on me suddenly that there's a whole lot more to it than just the legal issues. Uh, there's a saying that uh, cash is king to a small business. And believe me, I learned a lot about cash flow very early on. Um, there are these kinds of things that you don't necessarily expect, that you don't, uh, your, your past experience might not have prepared you for, that you must jump on very quickly and master them. Because if you don't, you will fail as a business. And then you feel as a failure as a person. I would remind people who have embarked on such ventures and, and have not succeeded, uh, to just keep trying. Persistence is the key there. Because every time you start again, you start with all of the background knowledge that you gained from your last failure. Uh, there's another saying out there that says if, if you're not failing regularly, you're not trying hard enough. And I, I buy into it because you've got to keep pushing the envelope. You've got to keep trying. You've got to keep doing different things. And that way, and some of them will fail. Many of them will fail. That's okay. Look at what you've learned, apply it to the next phase, and move on. I, I was intrigued during the, um, the dot-com bubble. And we had all of these dot-com companies out in Silicon Valley, and they, they were valued at billions of dollars from a traditional business sense. I'm looking at this and going, they don't have any assets. They don't have, I mean, even their intellectual property isn't worth that much. How are they valued at billions? And sure enough, it collapsed. And, and a whole bunch of people lost a whole lot of money. But what was intriguing to me was the people who had suffered through the most magnificent failures were the first ones to get new funding. New people came out of the woodwork and said, you have more money. You learn so much by that failure. We know you're not going to make those mistakes again. Your odds of success have gone way up. And, and that was a very valuable lesson for me wow. as an entrepreneur to say, okay, I'm, I'm playing it safe. I'm doing the training. I'm you know, managing my income. And I, and I said, you know what? It's time to do new stuff to embark on new things. And you and I have chatted about the, the whole arena of social media. And it is made up of not my generation. Let me just say it that way. And, and I'm intrigued as I, as I travel around and speak to groups, speak to chapters and organizations and conferences, and, and I ask the question about how many people are engaged in social media. And in my field, in my profession, it's a tiny percentage. Well, you got to remember, 65% of the people that do what I do for the government are eligible to retire today. In other words, it's this massive baby boomer wave going through the system right now. And there's going to be phenomenal opportunities for people, and not just as entrepreneurs, but as employees, 
to join with the government, to join with its contractors, to do exactly what I do. Ironically, this has caused me to revisit the training, and we have a whole bunch of new initiatives we're working on right now to train new people coming into the field. And that's kind of exciting. That's kind of a, a fun thing to do. But the entrepreneur route is simply not for everybody, but it can be incredibly rewarding. And for those who think they have the mindset to do it, my view is try it. You might like it. All right. Now, now we're going to touch more on uh, social media because, uh, you know, like how important is it for businesses and entrepreneurs to be on social media, especially, you know, since uh, this is being recorded here on Blab, how important is it is it for entrepreneurs to be on social media, especially here on Blab? There's a there's a discussion that goes on all the time on social media and there's even a book out there, it's called Start With Why and when I first got onto social media, I was asked that question, well, why are you here? And my answer was, I, I don't know. It seemed like the thing to do today. Uh, uh, Twitter, when I first got on, it seemed like an amazing time waster. Uh, until through my, what I refer to as my social media mentors, I learned how to use the tools. I learned what Twitter lists are. I learned about Twitter chat. In fact, that's where you and I met, was in a Twitter chat. Uh, where I was able to interact yeah. with new people, different people, different perspectives. And there are still, I think, some uh, some drawbacks in the sense of using some of the social media tools. Uh, I've, referred, I've referred to Twitter as reminding me very much of a Chamber of Commerce meeting because everybody's selling and nobody's buying. And when you spend time with, with some of the, uh, the folks there, uh, I, I joked one other time with him, and I said, you might have seen this because I did it in a Twitter chat, and I said, is there a job description for any millennial that is not social media manager or strategist? Uh, because that, that's what they all did. They were all there for that reason. Certainly, the early adopters and the people who are engaged in that would be the first to the platform. I get that. But if the platform is going to survive, and that's true with Twitter, with Blab, even with Facebook, Unless it expands to reach a broader audience with a broader set of interests, it's going to keep that narrow little focus. And in my opinion, and again, traditional business viewpoint here, it's simply not going to maintain the critical mass sufficient to allow it to maintain itself as a going entity. And so when I look at Lab, when even when I look at Twitter, when I look at the Twitter chat, I certainly enjoy my engagement with, with millennials and social media strategists and all that good stuff, and they've taught me a tremendous amount. I think that we have to take these platforms and engage with the various professions. Uh, there's a name most people will remember, will hear, if they haven't heard it, they've heard it here first because they will hear it again. Uh, Mitch Jackson, he's a lawyer out in California, yes. and he has just done wonderful things related to uh, he's done some wonderful things with social media for lawyers. And, and one of the things I admire about him is that the, uh, how do I say this, the law does not uh, maintain itself well against advancing technologies. Advancing technologies will outstrip the law. And the state bars, and that's who's regu who regulates lawyers, are not fans of social media. You know, they, they keep it in a very little closed community. And Mitch has found a way 
to drive that and and make it work properly. So the state bars are saying, well, yeah, that's okay. What he's doing is fine, and it's good stuff, and it's reaching out to the public, and it's reaching out to people who couldn't normally access lawyers, and he's being a tremendous help. So whether it's the legal community, the government contracting community, the entertainment community, as Cassie is in, uh, working with um, various with the mega parks is probably how I call them down in Orlando. Um, we've got to bring those elements to bear, and we have to have those people recognize the utility of these kinds of tools. Because if it stays within that little narrow niche of social media strategists, like I said, it's, it's going to be a chamber of commerce meeting, and people are going to stop going. Yeah, and now now I'm gonna ask you about you know since you and Cassie uh, host a Twitter chat here on leadership, can you share about uh, you know how important is leadership and and for those that's gonna be listening to the show, uh, Cassie uh, is is goes by Twitter handle name is Cassie. She and Tom host a Twitter Twitter uh, chat here, you know on leadership. So can you share about about that, uh, Tom? A few years ago. I was looking at my bookshelf. Now, you see books behind me. I, I got books everywhere. I'm a big bibliophile. In fact, a friend of mine refers to me as a bibliomaniac. I've gone way past bibliophile. And I, uh, I have in my library two whole shelves of books on leadership. And I was, I was kind of sitting there staring at it one day and thinking about leadership as a concept and as a principle. And I thought, okay, we've got leadership from every angle here. I've got the leadership secrets of Colin Powell, the leadership secrets of George Washington, of the Founding Fathers, of Abraham Lincoln, uh, of Santa Claus, of Attila the Hun. Literally, they have these books out there on these subjects. And, and I'm looking at them and thinking, okay, we've studied it, we've researched it, we've taught it, we've got institutes, we've got college degrees. And then I look at our major institutions, which I consider to be government, business, and and um, and religion. In those three areas, and I ask, well, where's the leadership? I mean, if we've read so much, we've written so much, we've studied so much, how come we can't do it? And this this drew me into the whole concept of leadership and saying, how do you get people to accept the leadership mantle and be better leaders? So it was that kind of an impetus behind it. I reached out to some friends, Cassie Lloyd. Cassie, it, it, Casey, I do that all the time. Casey um, was one of the people who literally took me by the hand when I showed up on Twitter. And I met her in, in I don't forget about her. Um, I didn't know anything about Twitter chats because you told me about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Actually, I was gonna say a Twitter chat, but I, we had a lot of conversations about me trying to pull you into them, so it yeah, might exactly not have been so. a Twitter chat. And so she, she literally took me by the hand. And she said, "Okay, this is Twitter. This is how it works. This is what happens. This is what you do." And so, without her help, I, I'd have been lost. I would have given up in different way. And so, to me, she exhibited true leadership traits. You know, she, she wasn't getting anything out of it. She was just helping some, some old guy who showed up on the scene to figure out how this stuff works. And so when I thought about doing a leadership lab, uh, I reached out to her. And I said, you know, you, you exhibit leadership. And she even said to me, she said, why me? I'm no leader. I'm like, yes, you are. And you don't even realize it. And so that's how it started. Uh, we dragged Jed into it. Jed Record, another name that a lot of people know. And um, he, he came up with the idea of step into leadership. Because one of my themes constantly is that 
leadership is never passive. Leadership is always active. And so you have to step forward. You have to accept the leadership role, and you have to do something because leaders are always measured by results. And you don't get results by sitting in your butt and watching. You have to do something. So that sort of bias for action was one of the motivators. And we started the, the Tuesday night session. We've been talking lately about the, the time frame and you know all the sort of logistics that come up as, as the platform grows. And so we might change the time. But uh, I think we're pretty dedicated to continuing the discussion because it's so important. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree. Now, now of course, uh, you know, for those that's going to be listening to this, I'm going to, uh, you know, my guest is a, of honor for for this is uh, Tom Reed, who is a uh, who owns Certified Contract Solutions, and it, and here on the chat as well, uh, you know, this podcast, uh, Casey is here, and also Kevin Stullian, who uh, hosts the podcast as well. So, so I'm gonna like ask, you know, Tom, I'm gonna ask you. Um, you know, since you since you host a show here, I normally give uh, people who are uh, you know podcasters, broadcasters, or television to former to ask me a question here. And Cassie and Kevin, I'm gonna allow you guys to ask me a question too. So go ahead, you know, one at a time. But no, I'll speak at once. Sorry, I'm, I'm just uh, catching up to speak with what you guys are talking about. That's why I'm being very quiet. What's up, uh, <laughs> Welcome, Kevin. I, I don't think we've met before, Kevin. No, Tom, um, where I, are you from? I'm based in Scotland. and uh, I was just reading your bio there, and my own background, I was in public sector for a number of years as a social worker, but became a senior manager and then jumped over to the not-for-profit sector and contracted I was managing contracts as we outsourced a lot of our work from the public sector to the voluntary. And I then jumped over to the voluntary sector and was involved in developing a big national provider from the not-for-profit sector. And then I went, finally ended up in chief executive of private healthcare companies, again contracting back into local government and things. So I've, uh, I've been around that sort of space in terms of contracting over the years. And there is a I gotta respect your your Scottish heritage because that's actually where uh, where my ancestors came from. Right. I've traced them back so far to the Revolutionary War, but but the red hair and the last name are a big giveaway. But uh, my roots are in your your home country. And are you going back to the Jacobites in 1745, that type of period? Or? Uh, say that again. You can. When are you going back to the 1700s? Uh, there's one one chain of the family that I've gotten back to 1759. Right, and after the they were already here in America, so uh, uh, Americans have become sort of being native in that. Well, I, I do a little podcast about my travels around Scotland, and I suppose an RV is what you would call it over in the States. It's just a, a hobby. But I was, I suppose, I was trying to catch up on what your discussion was all about, so I could maybe give uh, Cheval a, a question or an answer that he was after that wasn't quite sure what you were talking about. Well, Cheval, let me ask you this question. Oh, cool. um, 
you, okay. you do a lot of fighting in the sports arena, and uh, in, in prior conversations we've talked about uh, sports and such. Um, what drew you to that? Were you an active athlete yourself, or was it um, the, 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 the I want to call it the magic of sports because these are always sporting events. You know, they're, they're big deals. And so you do a lot of writing in that arena. Um, what drew you into that? Uh, I guess for me, I I guess I wanted to be a baseball player, but then and then, to, uh, you know, because of asthma, because I had asthma, I couldn't like you know participate. But I really didn't plan on being a sports writer, but it ended up happening because you know I because that you know while I was while I was in grad school, I you know ended up uh, you know doing a I was I was actually uh well I while I was in grad school I was you know someone approached me from the uh, from the school newspaper to ask me if I wanted to be a blogger so I said yeah because I knew that would allow me to uh, be in uh you know to to work for the school newspaper and during the time of blogging I decided to you know I wanted to cover sporting events so. I ended up covering two sporting events. It was, you know, on over the weekend, softball and baseball, and I just, I just fell in love with it. That I just continuously, you know, you know, write sports. And since I love sports, you know, it felt natural to be a sports writer. Do you find in talking with the the athletes that you write about, is there a particular personality trait that you find consistent? across athletes? Is there something about them that, that makes them successful athletes or is it more of a, a random mix of things? I honestly believe that it is hard work and dedication that makes them successful for the better. Because because people think that it's, you know, it's talent that gets them to where they are as a professional athlete, but that is not the case. It is it is basically having the right mindset to believe that they can succeed for the better and also putting in the training and hard work and dedication for them in order for them to succeed for the better in their professional sports. That's what makes makes uh, Peyton Manning and LeBron James successful. Does that drive to succeed, to, to be first, to be number one, uh, to be the the alpha male or alpha female in, in that sense, uh, does that have a? Um, this is the question I want to ask. Does it have a dark side that that will pull them into uh, some of the big scandals that you hear about that have gone on with various sports figures? I I don't know. I honestly don't know about that one. I mean, but at the same time, I think that, you know, like, especially, you know, with, you know, with steroid, with steroid era that happened, you know, I think, you know, they, they might, it's, it's almost like, you know, anyone looking for a shortcut to succeed, if they think they're going to succeed while they have a, while they're cheating, you know, it's going to catch up to them and hurt their career in the long run. Interesting. Yeah. So. So of course, so let me let me finish this up. Uh, three more questions. Uh, you know, if if you had the opportunity to spend time with one person you admire, past or present, to learn from, who would that person be? Oh, 
I, I've heard this question before, and I've actually given it a lot of thought, and I don't, I don't have a clear answer. Um, there are many people that I would love to spend time with and learn from. One of the problems in thinking about historical figures, because uh, in my mind, George Washington and Abe Lincoln both come to mind as people that would be fascinating to talk to. But historical figures, we tend to we tend to develop a persona about them that isn't the whole person. It is their key events and the things that they they did to succeed and help the country and help help the world. And so the fact that uh, maybe George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and maybe he lied about it and maybe he didn't, you know, we'll never know. But if you if you actually met with them and talked with them and got to know them as people, you, your your opinion of them is probably going to drop because they're real people and, and they have all the flaws and all the, the idiosyncrasies that we all have. Uh, nonetheless, from that historical perspective, they were great people that did great things. Um, and, in uh, various uh, areas, I, I would love to uh, be able to meet with uh, all the disciples of Jesus and, and uh, have dinner with them and, uh, and talk with them. And uh, it would be interesting to know them before he was around as well as after he was around because clearly he was a, a life changer to all of them. And uh, that would be a fascinating uh, dinner conversation. On the other hand, it would be interesting to meet with uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and other, you know, magnets, Andrew Carnegie, you know, Henry Ford, take your pick, any of the big business magnets who, who definitely uh, succeeded and had uh, a worldview that maybe differs from mine. Uh, it's always exciting and interesting to talk with people who think completely differently than you. When you only surround yourself with those who think the same, uh, that that's that's incestuous, intellectual incest in my view. And so dealing with um, a variety of people, and again, as I mentioned earlier about the three major areas that I see them being government and um, business and religion, uh, there are leaders in all three of those areas that I would, I would love to sit down and talk to. But there's a few samplings. It would be a, uh, it would be a dinner that spanned many centuries. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, what, um, where can people find out more about uh, your work? The uh, best place to go is to the company website. And uh, when we started back in 02, I, I captured certified contracting solutions. And everybody said, that's way too long. You can't. So we shortened it to certified K solutions. In my world, I use the, the letter K to stand for contract instead of writing it out all the time. Uh, and there's a website there. But another place to learn more about me and what we do is at my website, asktomreed.com. And we set that up initially just as a forum for people to ask questions. And since then, we've expanded it, and we now have stepped into the social media area. We have links to our Twitter site, our Facebook site, our LinkedIn site, and our YouTube site. We have videos and such out there for, for training and introduction to various fields. So, uh, yeah, the web's probably the best place, but you can always reach me at asktomreed.com. Or uh, in, invite me into a blab or a Twitter chat. I'm I'm always game for discussing new ideas. All right, well, Tom Marine, I want to say thank you for joining me on What's the Word. I am really honored. Uh, do you have any final words for our audience? There are so many people out there who have a uh, a mindset that says uh, I'm entitled. 
And the message I want to give is, no, you're not. Uh, you are just another human being like all the rest of us out here. And in fact, you are totally unique, just like everybody else. And so with that in mind, you need to be the best you that you can be. And that means take your natural talent. And your set of natural talents is different than everybody else's. You're the only one with that specific set. Take those natural talents, grow them, enhance them, and be the best you that you can be. And in that way, I believe you will find a role to step forward into leadership and be the leader and the leaders that this country, this world needs. Uh, despite all of the stuff that's gone on with leadership and the writing and the studying and all of that, uh, I struggle to find true leaders in our major organizations. You have that opportunity to be that leader, and I would encourage you to do so. All right. Thanks, Tom, again for joining me on What's the Word. Well, thank you. It's been quite an honor. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed the interview with uh, with Tom Reed, who's the owner of Certified Case Solutions. Uh, you know, had some you know difficulties in recording, but that's what happens. In, you know, in like in when you when the platform lab uh, is in beta, but that's that's fine. Uh, so please uh, join me again on this show and also if you enjoyed this episode and other episodes you can uh, go to my website www.belonomedia.com forward slash podcast uh, uh, slash two to find out more about uh, you know the upcoming podcast and also all the previous podcasts that I've posted here on Blog Talk Radio well uh, that is it for tonight's show and thank uh, everyone for joining me on What's the Word. Uh, the show that's about to uh, find out what inspires people to succeed in their, respect, their uh, respective careers. Uh, be real and be independent. And I leave you now with uh, with, uh, with Krista Earl's uh, San, uh, Dear Santa. Have a great night, everyone. And we'll see you guys next Monday night uh, with, our, with our guest, um, Adele DeMeyer. Have a great night, everyone. No white Christmas falling gently on the window pane. Little girl sits wondering, will Christmas be the same? Lights and tinsel shining, all the stockings hung with care. Jewel-tied carols all around, soon Santa will be there. Wait to see those headlights Pulling up into the drive She longs to see her daddy smile Tonight Dear Santa
Longs to see her daddy smile. 